Amen. You may be seated. Such a sweet time of worship. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 5. We're looking at verses 9 to 11. Romans 5, 9 to 11. We come to the end of this great section on assurance or hope. That is Paul's desire in these first 11 verses of Romans 5 is to help us keep our hope hot. And so this morning, we're going to look at the last three verses there, 9 to 11. I also want you to tear off a strip of your bulletin and make your way to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 7.25 as well. And so I want you to go ahead and put that in there. And uh, God willing, if you, if you can pray and listen at the same time, pray for my microphone. Pray specifically for my battery, my transmitter pack. That uh, seems to be where the issue is. But uh, as is our custom, we will, uh, we'll just read this, these three verses from Romans chapter 5, then we'll pray and we'll ask the Lord to help us, and then uh, we'll get to work. So if you would look with me, Romans chapter 5, verses 9 and following. It says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Now, Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your son. We give thanks and we thank you so much for his death upon the cross. And this morning, Lord, our prayer is that you would help us to remember to give thanks for something that we do not often give thanks for, for something that we do not often think of. Lord, we are reminded this morning that our Savior and your Son dying on the cross for our sins was only the beginning of his work. Remind us this morning, Lord, that our Savior ever lives to intercede for us, and that day by day he lives in heaven in glory, working on our behalf. Remind us of that this morning, Lord, and help us to give thanks. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Are you ready for the end of the world? Now, some of you are not. Others of you came this morning expecting to hear a Thanksgiving sermon. We will be motivated to give thanks by the, the end of our time together this morning, but it starts off with perspective. Where are we? The end of the world is approaching. It is coming. I'm not saying it's going to be here this week or next week or anytime soon, but it would be a mistake to say that there will never be a reckoning with the Lord. It is coming. In Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20, the Pharisees begin to ask Jesus when the kingdom of God was coming. And what they meant is, when will the Messiah come and overthrow all of Israel's enemies and establish the throne of David and bring peace and righteousness to the whole world? When is that going to happen? They were asking him. And Jesus' answer was baffling to them, to people who didn't acknowledge him to be the Messiah. He said, in effect, if your only way of recognizing the kingdom of God is by miraculous signs that bring down Roman tyranny, 
then you're going to miss it. You're surely going to miss the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is already in the midst of you. This is what he's telling them. He is saying to them that Jesus, he is the king. And wherever he is, wherever he is active, that is where the kingdom of God is present. That is where Jesus is reigning. And he is reigning at this time by winning people to allegiance to the coming one and true king. So he says to them, don't make the assumption of thinking, don't make the mistake of assuming that the kingdom of God can only be recognized by catastrophic signs and devastation. Don't make that mistake that the only way to identify the work of the kingdom is by looking for disaster and calamity. But then, in the very next verses, he warns them against making the opposite mistake. In verse 21 of Luke 17, he says, don't make the mistake of thinking that the only way you can see the kingdom of God is by looking for catastrophic signs. But then in the very next verse, verses 23 and 24, he warns them against thinking that the final appearance of the Son of Man could be anything but catastrophic. Notice that. It will not be quiet, he says. It will not be hidden. If someone says, look here or look there, then you know they are wrong. For the lightning flashes and it lights up the sky from one side to the other. And just as this, so also will be the Son of Man coming in his day, Jesus says in Luke 17. If someone says, oh, we can have him privately here in the closet or, or look over there at that particular church and that particular service at that time, we see him work there. In other words, it's not going to be secret. No, Jesus says it's going to be catastrophic. And in the same way that you see lightning flashing across the sky, so you will not be able to miss the return of Jesus Christ. Amen and hallelujah. But first, he makes this statement, and he says in verse 25, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. The difference between the first and second comings of Christ is the difference between a little candle burning and a bolt of lightning. Then in verses 31 to 37, Jesus warns you and me against hearing this teaching and being like Lot's wife. You remember Lot and his wife lived in Sodom that wicked city of old that God overthrew in one single night by raining fire and brimstone upon it. They were rescued by angels, and as they were fleeing the city, they were warned not to look back. And of course, Lot's wife, in love with her home, could not help but turn and cast a wistful eye backwards. And she turned to salt. So Jesus warns us not to be like that. And that is, in the hour of crisis, don't love this world. That's what Jesus is teaching. Don't ever turn back. Don't ever look at it with longing, or you will be unfit for the kingdom of God. Jesus, it's interesting. I need to mention this to you. Jesus doesn't mention sodomy there in Luke chapter 17 in the list of what characterized Sodom before its great day of destruction. In fact, he doesn't mention anything about it that would in and of itself be sinful. Even though they celebrated the LGBTQ sexual revolution and undoubtedly had pride parades of their own marching through the streets, Jesus doesn't mention any of that. What he says in Luke 17, he says that they ate, they drank, they bought, 
they sold, they planted, and they built up until the day of their destruction. Judgment didn't come upon Sodom merely because it exulted in things that are morally repugnant. Judgment came upon Sodom because for all that they were doing bad as well as good, for all that they were doing, all of their activity was utterly and totally godless. It was godless, both the bad and the good. And so in all of these warnings that Jesus is giving to you and me in Luke chapter 17, I take away this point. Celebrating sin can keep us from the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Christ. But the good things in life, just as much as the evil and morally repugnant things, can keep us just as insensitive to the reality of God and we should be on guard against both that which is morally repugnant as well as that which would make us insensitive and indifferent to the coming of Christ. At the end of all of this, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells an interesting parable. He says there was a widow who was denied justice, and she kept going to the judge over and over and over and over again, begging for justice. And Jesus makes this interesting statement. He says, the judge, he didn't fear God and he didn't have any respect for men, but this woman just kept beating him down day after day after day. And so he says to himself, though I don't fear God nor respect men, I'm just going to give her what she wants because she just keeps coming and beating me down day after day with her requests. And he says, so also will not your heavenly father execute justice for you speedily. But then he poses this really interesting question. Nevertheless, not if, he says, not if, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The crux of all of Jesus' teaching about the end of the world is this. God is ready to work for us for our blessing, the problem is that we turn to all other manner of devices, searching for our own security, searching for our own stability, looking to our own needs, rather than looking to God. Our hope, then, can be quickly diminished. Our hope, then, can be quickly washed away so that we look at the things of this life and we try to find our hope in what we can see as opposed to finding our hope in the power of Christ's kingdom unseen. Now, the reason I mention all of this to you this morning is because we've been looking at how to keep our hope hot these last four weeks, working our way through verses 1 to 11. And this morning, we come to the greatest reason for hope and the greatest reason why we know our hope can stay hot with Christ. Paul lays it out for us. And what I want us to do this morning is I want us to pick apart these three verses, 9 to 11. And what I want to leave you with this morning is that your focus would be on Christ that you would continuously be gazing to him, that he would be the focus of your prayers, and that your prayers would be the focus of your worry rather than your career or societal events, so that in all things you would know Christ is king and your hope is in him. Look with me in verse chapter 9, Romans 5. 
Paul makes this statement. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. And Paul has spent all of chapter 3 and chapter 4 really unpacking this. Because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, the greatest obstacle to our being reconciled with God has been addressed. We were sinners. And in the next verse, he's going to call us enemies. That is, we were hostile to God and God was hostile to us. It wasn't a matter of disagreement. It wasn't as though we're sitting in a coffee shop having a conversation and we've come to a difference of opinion. We were at war, and he is equally at war with us. Our sin was rebellion against him, and his wrath was justice and judgment against us. We were diametrically opposed to each other, but because of Christ bearing the weight of our sins, we can give thanks this morning because Christ has upheld the just standard of God, and he has given salvation and freedom and pardon to all those of us who have hoped in Jesus, which means we're no longer enemies. Now we are reconciled with God through Christ. He says, having said that, he makes that statement. If you look in verse chapter 9, he says, now, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, he makes this really interesting statement. And if you have a pen or a pencil, I invite you to underline it. He says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, the ESV puts of God in there. A number of other translations, NIV, will do that as well. But you should understand that the words of God are not actually there in the text. Translators have put that in there in order to make it explicit that you and I know what we're talking about here. We're talking about the wrath of God. But literally what it reads is, because of Jesus, he says, much more shall we be saved by him, by Jesus, from the wrath. That's what's being stated here, the wrath. And I think what Paul has in mind is he has two ideas here. He has our eternal judgment, but he also has those coming trials and tribulations which are coming upon the earth as the forerunners of the eventual day of the Lord when Christ returns. But I want you to underline that expression, much more. So in verse 9, he says much more, and he says it again in verse 10. He says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, there it is, much more, shall we be saved by his life. What Paul is alluding to there is the fact that Christ died for us and that has saved us, but that was only the beginning of our salvation. He says, Christ died, we were reconciled, and as a result of that, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God, but Christ lives, and as a result of that, much more shall we be saved as a result of his life. That's what he's driving at here. Now, you're hearing that, and you're like, what does that actually mean, much more? This is what we would call an a fortiori argument. Clear enough? Okay, maybe you're not familiar with that terminology. If uh, you attend our classical school here, you ought to be familiar with that terminology, having taken logics, but I will spare all of our grade 7, 8, 9 students the embarrassment of being given a pop quiz from the pulpit. This expression, a fortiori, means if the greatest is true, then the lesser corollary will be true as well. It's a logical argument. It means if the greatest is true, the lesser will be true as well. Now you're saying, okay, sounds great, but what in the world does that actually practically mean? Let me just paint an illustration for you. Let's just assume, hypothetically for a moment, that you went out and bought a top-of-the-line car, nicest car you could buy. Say you wanted to go buy a brand-new Cadillac, or maybe you had your eye on that brand-new Ford truck, 
And you're going to go out and you're going to drop 60, 70, 80,000. You're going to get it all decked out. You're going to get all the bells and whistles, all the upgrades, leather interior, power windows, all this. You know, you're going to get the, the $2,000 brake lights that can tell you when someone is hiding in your blind spot. I mean, you're just going to go all in on this thing. And let's just say you go and you're at the dealer and he's like, do you want this nice new truck? And you say, yes, I do. And you plop down $60,000. Here are your keys. Great, I'm excited. You jump in your brand new truck. It's got that new interior, new car smell. You just love that smell. You fire it up. Oh, that engine's purring like a kitten. Sounds great. You drive it home. You park it in your driveway. You go inside. You say, wife, honey, check it out, my new truck. She's like, hey, let's go for a joyride. Maybe go get some ice cream or something. Sounds great. You jump in your truck. You put your key in the ignition. Click, 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 click. What is that, you wonder? It's the sound of a dead car battery. Just enough juice to make your starter solenoid engage and make that clicking sound, but that's about it. Not enough to actually spin your engine, crank your engine over. You get out of the truck, you scratch your head. Your wife says to you, well, what do you think it is? You know what it is. You've heard that sound before. That's a dead battery. She says, well, what are you going to do about it? Nothing. I already spent $60,000 on this truck. I could care less what happens to it now. And you throw your keys on the driveway and you go inside and that's the end of that. Does that sound logical to you? Of course not. If you've dropped 60 grand on a truck and for whatever reason you get it home and it's got a dead car battery, well, how much does a car battery cost? Well, I mean, it depends. Around $100, $120. So if you're going to drop $60,000 on a brand new automobile, if you're in for a pound, if you're in for hundreds of pounds, then surely you're not going to have a problem dropping a few more pennies. You've heard the expression, in for a penny, in for a pound. That's an expression that speaks to the sunk cost fallacy. This has to do with you and me and the foolishness with which we often approach investing. The idea is you put in a few pennies on a bad bet and you're not sure whether it's going to work out or not and it starts to go sideways, but you want to recoup that initial investment of a few pennies. So you start to put more money into it to try to pull out the few pennies that you put into it. And what happens is you start to sink more and more and more money into ultimately a thing that is just not worthwhile and you lose your money. You and I, we make these kinds of gambles. But here's the deal. All of us here, we can all attest to that moment in which we put in a little bit of money and then we just kept putting in more money and more money because we didn't want to lose that initial investment. If that's the attachment that you and I have to small things, surely none of us here would ever be so ridiculous as to say, I'm going to drop $60,000 on a brand new automobile, but I can't afford to put in another $100 on a car battery. Even if it's going on your credit card, I'm pretty sure most of us here are going to be like, well, I'm swiping that credit card because there's no way I'm going to sit here with a brand new Four trucks sitting in my driveway, rusting and falling apart, undriven, unused for the next 10 years. Nobody would do that. And I got good news for you. That's exactly what Paul is saying about our Heavenly Father. Look again at the text. Verse 9, chapter 5. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by blood... 
your redemption was not cheap. Your redemption came at the infinite precious value of the Holy Son of God. As it says in John 3.16, the only begotten Son of God. It was his only child, and he was the creator of the universe. Holy, precious, loved by the Father. God puts his Son in and purchases you with the price of blood. You are already bargained for to the tune of infinite money, infinite value, infinite worth. So if God is already in for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pounds, surely he's good for a few more pennies. That's what Paul is saying. Surely God will be good for a little more if he's already done this much. It makes logical sense. That's what Paul is saying. So, That's the question here then. What is it further that we need? If our redemption has been purchased, if our sins have been atoned, then what now is Christ doing? What more is he accomplishing? That's the question here. In verse 9, he says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. First, that must surely be a reference to the eternal judgment that all those who reject God, all those who reject Christ, when they stand before the judgment throne, when they have left behind this life and they stand before God, they will be condemned as guilty and there will be nothing for them but an eternity of torment in hell accounting for their crimes against the king. Surely that's the first way that this is to be understood. But there's a second way. You see, there will be a catastrophic time of divine judgment that comes upon this earth just before the day of the Lord. His day is here and now. His kingdom is here and now, though it is imperceptible. We are not to make the mistake of thinking that his kingdom is only observed through the catastrophic. It is observed through the calm, gathered worship services of the church. The Christian brother or sister who's preaching the gospel We understand that. But by the same token, the kingdom of God will come and be preceded by catastrophic events. I was at men's Bible study on Tuesday. We looked at Joel chapter 1. Such a great passage. I'm so grateful we're going through the minor prophets. It's been so long since I've done any kind of an intensive study through the minor prophets. I was reminded of some great truths. We had a great conversation. One of the things that Joel chapter 1 talks about is this, this locust swarm that you know, eradicates all of the food in Israel. We had a great discussion about that, but I was talking to the Lord. I was standing in my driveway. Uh, I think it was on Wednesday or Thursday. And I was just reflecting on this passage, and uh, I, I realized my home sits in the 100-year floodplain. And I was thinking about that, and I was just praying and talking to the Lord. And uh, this thought impressed itself upon my heart. How do you know it's 100 years till the next great flood that'll wash away your house? And I started wondering, I asked the Lord, I said, who actually comes up with that 100-year estimate? Like, who, who does that? Like, who, who do I point the finger at when next year my house washes away? Even though the last great flood that hit Kamloops was 1973, so I should theoretically be good until 2073, right? Well, so says man. But God says something different. 
And I started to reflect as well on different scripture verses. And the one that came to my mind was this particular passage from Amos chapter 3. We're hopefully going to get there after we finish Joel with the men's Bible study. But Amos chapter 3, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people not alarmed? In other words, you're in your office and going about your business and all of a sudden the fire alarm goes off. Don't you take note of that? Sure you do. Don't you kind of poke your head out in the hallway or look over above the top of your cubicle and just try to make sure everything's okay? Sure you do. So this question is posed, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not alarmed? It's a rhetorical question. Of course they are. Of course they are. And then he follows with this. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Hmm. You know, in 2017, we had the greatest wildfire season in this province that has ever been recorded in the history of British Columbia. 1.2 million hectares burned, but by the grace of God, no human lives were lost. His mercy was with us, but we must also acknowledge his judgment was coming. In 2000, the very next year, in 2018, even more land burned, 1.3 million hectares. And of course, we see all this burning and all this destruction, and the air was thick with smoke that year. Whereas in Kamloops, we had minor irritations and disturbances as a result of smoke, in the summer of 2018, they had like, you know, 10 is the highest in terms of the air quality rating. Like if you set a 10, it's like dangerous, don't go outside. And we were at like a 22. I mean, it was crazy. You couldn't see more than 10 feet in front of you. Was there a great revival that swept across British Columbia? I didn't see it. Did church attendance uptick? No. Were there pastors calling for solemn assemblies and fasts and calling for prayer for our province? This pastor didn't. And so then what happened in 2019? You may have heard of it, little virus, COVID-19. And all of a sudden, the whole world was terrified to go outside and to breathe the same air as the person next to them. Of course, we grieved through COVID-19. Every other province restricted worship gatherings. I mean, some, most of them very severely. You could only have 50 people gathering or 10% or whichever was smaller. But the point was, every other province in Canada still allowed for some kind of a worship gathering, but not British Columbia. And then what happened? 2020 and 2021. In 2021, the worst wildfire season to date. More fires, more hectares, but this time entire cities disappeared overnight. The town of Lytton, here today, gone tomorrow. All of us took shelter, and, and in fact, a number of people from Logan Lake came this way as the fire approached Logan Lake, and we were all praying and saying, you know, Logan Lake may not even be here tomorrow. God in his mercy spared Logan Lake. But what made that wildfire season unlike all the other seasons before, it was preceded by a heat dome in which conservative estimates suggest as many as 600 people died. Whereas we'd had wildfires and we'd had catastrophes, God in his grace 
had not struck with the blade of of vengeance. We got through it, and we said to ourselves, well, I'm glad that's over. Now we can all go back to life as normal. The wildfire season came to an end in September, and in October and November, we had a very new phenomenon that we experienced that we'd never seen before. An atmospheric river, they called it. I was doing the math because I never, I hadn't even seen any reporting on this, but around seven inches fell across a 400 square mile area, the interior of British Columbia. If you're doing the math, that adds up to around 4.8 billion gallons of water. If you're curious how much that is, that's about the volume of the little shoe swap. Of course, everything had been completely burned away, so the water normally would be held in check by various trees and vegetation. That didn't happen. It all ran downhill towards Vancouver. We lost the Coquihalla, and for a period of time, Kamloops was cut off. And what did we realize during that event? We only have about two to three days' worth of groceries on the shelves. This last season, there was a reprieve from the wildfires. We still had them, but they weren't as severe. And yet, we are now currently in the midst of a very severe drought. Just last night, I'm watching the news, and they have climatologists, which is a very new uh, division of science. It used to be meteorologists, but they don't want the stigma of being associated with weathermen, so they call themselves climatologists. (laughs) Climatologists being interviewed on global news. And what they're saying is that as a result of the drought that is now sweeping our province, we're experiencing warm weathers, which you and I have been giving thanks to the Lord for, this really prolonged spring, summer, I should say, summer into fall. But all the rivers are drying up, and now the salmon are able to swim upriver to spawn. Their concern, of course, is for the salmon. But the recommendation by the end of the report is we really need to move away from diesel and gasoline vehicles to Teslas and electric vehicles. And I listen to all of that, and I can't help but think to myself, why don't we call out to God? Why are the churches not crying out to the communities and the neighborhoods around us and saying, The Lord reigns, and surely he is not pleased with the decisions we've been making as a province or the decisions we've been making as a country. Not that you and I would ever speak condemnation, but why are we not calling out and saying there is a God in heaven who loves, who can forgive, and who can repair and restore the chaos that we're experiencing? Fifty years ago, if this sort of thing had happened, journalists might say, yeah, and this is actually written about in the Bible. This is but the beginning of birth pains. But last night, the journalist on TV was saying, this is a result of climate change, and we must do more to save ourselves. And I'm just wondering, where are we, church? 
You see, Jesus can save us to the uttermost. I believe that. And I don't think that we need to really fear the danger of all of these climate change and all this kind of thing. I think the real danger now and always has been to ignore God. But I'm wondering if the world around us, because they keep preaching this nonsense and they keep suppressing us and they keep trying to tell us that we're fools for trusting in Jesus, I'm just wondering whether or not that sort of pressure and influence from the world has caused us to start getting really, really quiet about the good news of Jesus Christ. See, the danger that Jesus warned about in Luke chapter 17, he said there are two dangers. There's oppression, there's torture, there is obviously uh, the world coming after you to persecute you as a result of your faith. But then the other danger that he was warning about was this. The greatest danger that you and I experience is not the persecution of the world, it's the coldness of our faith by a hope that has stopped seeking Christ and may have been pressured by two things, persecution, but almost certainly decadence. Which is it? Because we are certainly far too quiet knowing what we know and seeing what we're seeing. I think that what we need is we need the Lord to fire our hope and to reorient our vision on Christ. And so I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Bunyan, the famous author of Pilgrim's Progress, used to be a drunk. And he used to, according to his own testimony, spend his days face down in a street gutter because he was inebriated. He eventually found Christ, and he would often quote this passage from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, and he would say, God is able to save to the uttermost. And he would refer to himself as being a face down in the gutter drunk, and he would say, just look at me. God saved me from the guttermost to the uttermost. And that's the promise that we have here in Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 25, consequently, the author of Hebrews says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 25 is wonderfully plain, but it has three crucial parts which you need to take note of and underline. Number one, Christ is able to save to the uttermost. It doesn't matter how far down into the gutter you are. As Bunyan said, he can save you from the gutter to the uttermost. He can rescue you no matter what. Number two, the text tells us he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus, even now, is in heaven looking at you and me with our quiet lips and our embarrassment over this powerful good news that we've been given. And he is even now looking at you and me, noting our silence, yet praying on our behalf to the Heavenly Father that we would be strengthened and have our hope fired by a vision of him. We may have quit. We may have taken an extended holiday, or as they say in Texas, we're all out on siesta, but not Jesus. He's still working in heaven for you and me. He's still active on our behalf. Says he always lives to make intercession for us. And the third thing is this, this eternal intercession and eternal salvation are for those who will draw near to God through Christ. Think with me about that relationship between those, that, the first two of those statements. Christ is able to save forever to the uttermost, and Christ always lives to make intercession for us. What, 
So what's the connection? I think it's made explicit in this particular verse, and it's extremely important. It says that he is able to save us forever. Forever he is able to save us. Since or because he always lives to make intercession for us. In other words, our future eternal salvation hangs on Christ's eternal, forever happening intercession for us. He is always interceding for us. And this implies two things, two huge things for us. Number one, there is something that we are always being saved from. And number two, our eternal security depends upon Christ's enduring ministry. Now, he never quits, which means we are never lost. However, even now today, there's something we need Jesus to save us from. As you sit here, brother and sister, on this Thanksgiving day, there is something stalking you or perhaps there's something in your heart that you're aware of that is dragging you away. Jesus can save you, and he wants to. He lives to. That's what Hebrews is telling us. This means that when we talk about our salvation with people, we shouldn't speak of it in static terms. I'm reminded of the evangelist that will come up and say, hey, brother, are you saved? And of course, the correct answer, if you know Jesus, is you reply to him, why, yes, yes, I am. But you know what? It's just as biblical to say, no, I'm not. Not in the sense that I'm not one day going to be saved, but that as Christians, we struggle through two realities. We are saved and we are still being saved. Yes, I'm saved, but yes, I'm still waiting for the final and ultimate salvation that comes when our Lord returns. And that's what he, the author of Hebrews is driving at here. We should not speak about our salvation in these static terms as though I prayed a prayer or I believed something 30 years ago at vacation Bible school and now I'm good and I never have to think about it ever again. Jesus saves, once saved, always saved, but he lives to save you day by day. Your salvation then isn't a once and done affair. It is always ongoing. It is always dynamic. Have we quit on Christ? Have we stopped chasing after him and pursuing him? Have we been shamed into silence by the world around us? Jesus now is working to fire your hope in him. That's what he's doing. The presentation of his person in heaven as fully divine and fully human before the throne of God on your behalf is happening so that he can make intercession. I think what this means is that when he is in heaven interceding for us, he is speaking to the Father about each one of you individually, pleading for you, praying for you. And the basis of his intercession is not some lame sacrifice, not some Old Testament sacrifice of a, of a sheep or a lamb or something like this. The basis of his intercession is his own blood. And he stands before his heavenly Father who loved him. And he's saying, on the basis of my sacrifice on the cross and the shedding of my blood on the cross, help these people. And to be more specific, he's looking at you saying, help him, help her. Jesus lives to save us to the uttermost. Therefore, there is in Jesus' intercession for us a requesting of God for our blessing 
expressed by Jesus to God, stating his desires and his will for this church and for you who are individually members of it. You know, it's a tricky thing, spiritual growth. I can speak with some experience as a pastor, trying to encourage people to be in their Bibles more, trying to encourage people to pursue fellowship more. And I know from experience, time and again, you're in a Bible study or you're at someone's house having coffee, there's a time in which you need to give a little bit of a rebuke, but you also have to be mindful of that because we have ego, we have pride, and so if you're in a group of other men and something comes out in conversation, that might not be the best time to address it or to speak to it, but then another brother is sitting there watching you not say something and starts to think, oh, you know, you're just a, a lame pastor, you need to be speaking to these issues never appreciating the dynamics and the tension of all of this. And so you're looking for those private moments, you're looking for those quiet conversations, you're seeking to help people grow in their faith, you're seeking to help encourage them and to motivate them. It's a tricky business. Jesus now is reigning on the throne before the Father, taking you through difficult situations, through trials and tribulations in order to sharpen you in your hope in Christ. At other times, he is sparing you from temptation. He is keeping you back from being led into certain situations and certain circumstances because he knows. Uh-uh, he ain't ready for that just yet. Whether you're mindful of it or not, whether you're attentive to it or not, Jesus, every second, every minute, every hour of every day, is working on your behalf before the Father, and He desires your blessing. The problems come when we don't listen to Him. We don't pray the prayer He taught us to pray. Don't lead me into temptation. We don't pray as He's taught us to pray. We don't look to Him. The issue here, then, is that we run off on our own path, doing our own thing, and experiencing the heartbreak and the sorrow of our own choices. But Jesus doesn't quit on us. He is still working. Which brings me to my third point that I want you to see. It says there in verse 11, more than that, this a-fortiori argument, if the lesser is true, the greater is true. But what's interesting about verse 11 is that it is a throwback to verse 3. In verse 11, he says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So verse 11 is saying, now, as a result of all of this, more than anything else that's come before, we now worship God. We now experience a relationship with God. But as I said, it's a throwback to verse 3. You go back to verse 3. What does verse 3 say? Starts off the same way. More than that. See the parallel there? More than that, though, look at what he says. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. In verse 11, Paul says, more than that, we rejoice in God. And that is a throwback to what he has just finished saying in verse 3, which is to say, more than that, we know God is in control and everything is being worked by God ultimately to form holiness and character in us. And now the greatest reason for hope, the greatest reason for why we should never quit on Jesus is because Paul says, Jesus even now is living in heaven, living to save us to the uttermost interceding on our behalf. 
I have prayed and thought long and hard about how best to illustrate this. And I think the best illustration I could come up with is Peter, the night before Jesus was to be crucified. Peter had sworn, I'll never deny you. I'll never forsake you. I'm with you to the end, even if it kills me. So sure of his own faith, he was. And Jesus' response, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. It's going to be a crushing experience. And for any ordinary man, including Peter, it would be the kind of experience that would break his faith, cause him to fall away, maybe become apostate. But Peter's faith, initially and ultimately, from the beginning and to the end, was not in himself. It was in Jesus. And so Jesus says, you're about to go through something that's going to break you like you've never been broken before. But take heart, Peter. He says, take heart. I have prayed for you. I have interceded for you that your faith may not fail. At this point, you'd expect if this were an ordinary man, some kind of vacillation, you know, some kind of wavering back and forth. And if it's God's will, maybe your faith won't fail. Fingers crossed. Let's see what God does. That's how you and I have to talk. But that is not how Jesus talks. Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. If Peter's hope was in himself, we have no hope. There is no Peter. We never hear of him ever again. But Peter believed in Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross for you tomorrow. And even then, my work isn't over. I will intercede for you for all of eternity. Wherever we are right now, church, wherever you are at individually, Christ has a will and a desire for you to be involved in worship, to be involved in fellowship, to be deep in his word and be walking with him every day and to be loud and vocal about the goodness of Christ. For whatever reason, you've been silent or for whatever sin you've been toying with, or for whatever temptation you've been dallying with, I want you to know Jesus is here right now to save you from all that stalks you. And he can. And that's his desire. There's a story told about Alexander the Great. You know Alexander the Great, the general that like conquered the entire world, swept across the whole world and, and did all kinds of crazy things. He had a number of generals, and uh, one of his best generals came to him. He summoned him. He said, you have served me well. Tell me, what can I do to repay you or to show you how grateful I am for your service to me? And the general, as the story is told, the general said to Alexander the Great, I'm getting married, and I'd like to have a really lavish wedding for my bride. Would you pay for it? (laughs) And Alexander the Great, as the legend has it, we're not sure if this actually historically happened. There are a couple of apocryphal accounts. We're not sure how accurate this is. But as the legend goes, Alexander the Great said, 
Yes, I will. I'll pay for it. And so off the general goes. Well, a few weeks later, the treasurer comes in with a whole host of counselors for Alexander the Great. And they sit down and they say, we got a problem, Alexander. He's like, well, what's the problem? Say, you don't have any idea what kind of money this general's wanting to take out for this wedding of his. And Alexander the Great says, oh, it'll be fine. I'm sure it's okay. No big deal. How much? And so they, you know, they do the number on a paper, slide it across the table a bit. He looks at it and he says, whoa, that's a lot of money. And they're like, yeah, this threatens to bankrupt the empire. Like, this is a lot of money. You should just tell him to forget it. And Alexander sat down and he was tempted to go back on his word and say, forget it, man. Like, your, your wedding is way too crazy expensive. I can't swing that. He was thinking that. But then as the legend goes, Alexander the Great thought about it and he came back to his advisors and his treasure and he said, pay the bill. This man in requesting this of me, pays me two compliments. Number one, he pays me the compliment of believing that I am as wealthy as he seems to think that I am. <laughs> he thinks that I am far richer and far wealthier than I actually am. He compliments me by saying this to me. But even more so, the greatest compliment that he pays me, he believes in me that I am generous and gracious and that I won't blink an eye to pay this sum for his wedding. Pay the bill. Now that story, we're not sure ever actually happened, at least as far as Alexander is concerned. But church, there's another wedding coming. And it's the wedding of Jesus Christ with his bride, which is you, the church. I want you to know, he intends for you to be decked out to the nines, dressed in righteousness, holy without spot or blemish. And he has gone before the Father, and he has asked that the Father would spare no expense to make you ready for that day. And the Father has granted that luxurious proposal. Are we praying that Jesus makes us ready? Or are we praying that Jesus makes life easy? Is our hope in Christ or is our hope in this world? Let us pray. Father in heaven, let your son do his work. Do what he needs to do. We are your people. We forget it from time to time. We put our hope we put our confidence in the things we can see, whether it be our job or our bank account, our RSP, our retirement, our pension, whatever. It's all a lie. Just as they say I shouldn't have a flood at my home for the next 70 years, so this world makes many false promises. Help us, O oh Lord, to know that you can heal this earth, you and you alone, and help us daily to give thanks to your son for healing us and helping us to walk in holiness. Don't quit on us, Jesus. And we rejoice because the promise you have given is that you never will. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.